Good morning, everybody. You're listening to Christy Roxburgh on Change Your Own Mind. I've got quite a jam-packed show for you this morning um, because I am lucky enough to be joined by two guests who I'll be speaking to um, separately in a moment. Both are sport-related and as many of you know in the work that I do um, as a hypnotherapist I work, I specialise in working with sports people, both professional am- uh, athletes and also keen amateurs. And I've worked in a variety of sports, so I don't specialise in one particular area. But there are certain sports I've found which uh, people are more open, I suppose, to coming to see whether it's a sports psychologist or a hypnotherapist for different elements of, of helping them improve their sporting performance. Now, both the people who I'm going to be interviewing this morning are sports coaches, and uh, they work in, well, the first works mainly in volleyball and the second mainly in the areas of football and mixed martial arts. And both of them have uh, a, a sort of an active interest in sport themselves, but are involved in co- either coaching and or the educational side. But they're also both heavily involved in the mental aspect of sport. And this is why I was really interested in getting them onto the show, because... Obviously, the emphasis is on about changing your mind to, in order to change the way that you behave, think or feel. So I, this is an element I'm particularly interested in and, um, and hopefully we will gain some, some really useful and valuable insights from both of these people that I'm going to be talking to. As always, if you're interested in finding out more about any of the topics that are discussed on the show today, then please feel free to get in touch with me uh, either via my website at christyhypnotherapy.com or you can contact me through my profile on the Natural Health Radio website. There will also be a podcast of this show available to download uh, once uh, once this show has gone live this morning. Now before we get my first guest onto the show, I just wanted to do another quick recap really about um, the mental side of sport and I think it used to be in in the past that people in the sporting world would view sporting performance as very much you just have to practice 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 and as long as you put in the training hours the physical skill um, then you would be good you can you can develop at your sport and, and become professional And there's an element of this which is absolutely true. Uh, There is the 10,000 hour rule, which some people propose, which says that in order to become excellent at anything, not just sport, you have to put in at least 10,000 hours of training or practice in order to become an expert at it. And I think there's this rings hugely true um, for, for a great many sports and a great many skills in life. But there is an element now that people are saying, well, if you enhance not only your physical and the technical element of a sport, but you're also able to become mentally tough, as some people say, so to develop the mental side, the mental skills around sport. And these include anything from being able to relax um, and not become overstressed or too over-aroused, to also being too relaxed and actually not having enough focus and easily getting distracted 
So needing an enhanced level of focus, getting the balance between those two when you're playing sport is so fundamentally key that it can really, really make a difference in somebody's performance. So this is really what talking about the mental skills side in sport is all about. And there's a great quote, which I think sort of sums this up really, um, that came from a US baseball player called, uh, famous US baseball player, Yogi Berra, who once said that uh, 90% of baseball is mental, the other half is physical. And really in this quote, obviously not getting his percentages right, but really he was saying that so much of the game is all about your mental state and your and your attitude. And then the other half of it is about your physical and technical ability. So once you've got that technical ability, if you can then enhance the mental side, you can almost go over the, the 100% as it were. You know, you can you can take it beyond what you thought uh, was the maximum. So really, this is what we're going to be talking about today. If there's any budding sports people out there or indeed professional athletes listening, I hope that um, that this will be of interest to you and that you'll be able to take away even maybe some snippets of information um, that may well help your, your own personal situation. So without further ado, let's um, let's introduce my first guest. So welcome to this morning to the show, Mickey. Uh, it's Mickey Morning. Earl. How are you doing this morning? Good, yourself? Good, thank you very much, and thank you for your time. No um, problem. Just for the listeners out there, can I just ask you to do a very quick introduction to kind of who you are um, and your background, please? Sure. Um, following doing, uh, university doing sports coaching science, I did some work out in the States for a large sports coaching organization for a couple of years around New York, and then... After doing that and training coaches and mentoring coaches and sports teams, I moved back to the UK and actually worked with uh, different children's groups and young people's organisations and the county council, working with very youth service operations. After that, I, I started work for the root of it as a behaviour management consultant, going in schools, working with young people exhibiting behavioural difficulties, but also alongside that, I've continued my sports coaching work and coached various sports teams. Okay, interesting. And and do you have a personal interest in sport yourself? Do you do you play? Are you? Is there one particular sport that you have a love of? Well, I've, I've anything competitive and with a ball, I'll normally have a go at. I've, at times, <laughs> I've, I've 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 skied at a high level. I've played a lot of football, a lot of rugby, a lot of cricket, a lot of golf. Uh, but now my big thing is volleyball. I play a lot of volleyball at the moment. Okay. And you said you're working a lot with um, on the behavioural side with children. Is yeah. that mainly where your your coaching work is focused these now, or is that just that's obviously that's on the behavioural side? On the sports side, do you coach adults as well? Yes, I coach at the moment. I coach Worthing Ladies Volleyball Club. Uh, I used to have a lot more coaching commitments. So I used to help with the South East England girls coaching, and also some men's teams and a football team. But unfortunately, with with work and family commitments, I've had to rein that down to just the one team at the moment. I also play and occasionally train with Worthing Men's, uh, occasionally train Men's Volleyball Club as well. Okay. Sounds like you've got uh, quite a full schedule then. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Well, for this morning's show, obviously um, the, the, the name of, of my show and the topic of, of most of my shows on this radio station 
are about a kind of the mental aspect of, of whatever it is. And in the work I do, I, I specialise in working quite a lot with small sports people to help them maybe overcome anxieties or nerves, particularly related to competitions. Um, mm. So from a coach's perspective, sort of how do you find that, I guess you, you find that people respond in different ways to different styles of coaching? Um, and I'm just interested in some of the ways that you you kind of manage this um, and the ways in which you you kind of help whoever it is that you're working with to to get the most out of them really and get the, the, their optimal performance. There's so there's so much in that at the club we coach at the moment uh, at, the, at Worthing Volleyball Club we have uh, international standard volleyball players who have played represented their country. And we also have absolute beginners. We have 13, 14 year old players and we have players who are reaching the end of their career without wanting to put an age on it. <laughs> and it does make it a difficult challenge to try and coach those women at once. And everyone needs their individual uh, way of coaching, individual style of feedback. Some of the women like very short, sharp, direct that wasn't good enough, do this, and they take that, and everything is about getting better. And so they don't want any niceties or too much hand-holding. They just want to, right, that was wrong. This is how I'm going to make it better. And if I try and talk too much to them, they get annoyed with me. Others, they're there about having fun. So it's it's to kind of try and improve their game. It's more about, hey, why don't you try this? That was really good, and a lot more encouragement and friendly sort of approach and with others you just don't feed back during the session it's afterwards when they're in the session they need to focus on what they're doing and so I think one of the biggest things for a coach is working out how your individual players best like their feedback best like their training and then delivering that it's almost as important as the expertise in the sport so, yeah, no, that's fascinating. It must be a real challenge when you're working with a team to get that balance right. Like you say, give someone personal individual attention actually during the training or, or match and then for other people to leave them alone until afterwards. And you're not going to get to know that until you've worked with that person for a while, are you? No, and I think that's so key, especially with some of the one of the teams I coach. It's all about relationship and it's taken me kind of years of working with them to be able to talk to them how I do and to know them and occasionally when another coach feels in he'll try and speak to them the same way and they'll react badly to that because it's based on the, that relationship right so yeah, that makes sense and do you when you're obviously coaching you know and actually doing the the physical training and practice do you work um, sort of offline as it were with any of your with any of the team um, in terms of giving them exercises to do, you know, I suppose the mental training exercises, or or is that very much uh, just make sure that you, you you make sure people go away and do some relaxation, have some downtime, are kind of emotionally okay in the rest of their lives? Do, do you have the opportunity to get involved that personally, or is it very much just they come to the training sessions you work with them as much as you can there, and, but then their personal life is, is their own. No, there's a lot of social stuff that happens within the club, and I think individually there's little pockets of, of the team that the teams that self-support each other, little peer networking groups that help each other. I think I'll, I will be able to spot the ones who maybe 
aren't performing as normal or aren't looking quite right and I'll chat to them and I'll find that they will talk to me because I'm seeing these people kind of two, three times a week more than they see a lot of their friends. You do build that relationship and I am able to talk to them about a lot of stuff at home and hopefully help. In terms of directing stuff at home like downtime or more training, that sort of thing, we don't really tend to do that too much. I mean, sometimes, especially with the younger players, where you can see that they're training an awful lot, maybe they're with a regional squad as well, and us and a national team, they start to get a little bit tired of it and it's always, and sometimes a little bit results-focused becomes a chore. And with them, I'll maybe say, don't come training for a few weeks or maybe don't play in this game, play in this game to get them back to the enjoyment of it. So I think from at a young age, it's really important that you focus on the enjoyment of the game and then move on to the the other side of things later and it's also managing your play as well I mean volleyball especially when you work for for the guys it's quite there's a lot of egos in the game and when you when you see it on tv it's a lot of you know ah, hitting the ball up in the air very high it's actually a very powerful game yeah with the men and they're, they're smashing the ball down on the floor and there's a big kind of ego grunt to it and I find working with some of the younger lads, when they get blocked, that's when you try and hit the ball over the net as hard as you can, down on the floor on the other side, and the other team will block the ball down on you. There's a big sort of ego hit at that. And I find occasionally where I've got a lad who's stepped up to a high level and he gets blocked a lot in a game, he's trying to hit it harder and he gets blocked, I can see that that's starting to impact on his enjoyment and his confidence. And he gives up trying to hit the ball hard. He hits it gently. He does a little gentle hit into a gap. And for him, I'll make a decision to maybe drop him down a level, not because he hasn't got the ability, but so he can experience some success again with the hitting and maybe work on a few things to help him get round the block better. So then when he comes back up to the higher level, he can experience more success. I find that if you leave people not succeeding too long in this, in a game where it's very much, there is quite intense, the balls, the echoes, the noise of the, the, the ceilings, it, it can affect them a lot, getting blocked a lot. And so I will make sure they experience a lot of success. Mm. Well, and, and just picking up on something you said at the very beginning there, it's the kind of the process versus pleasure argument, isn't it? You know, people people might play any sport, whether it's golf, volleyball, tennis, whatever, because they enjoy the actual process of the sport. They enjoy getting better. They enjoy increasing their score, reducing their handicap, etc. But actually, if the pleasure goes out of it completely, and and very often, as you've just said, I imagine pleasure can deteriorate very quickly if someone feels that they're not doing very well, then mm. then it, it all falls apart, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it would take a it would take an extremely strong person to to do something, even if they're not enjoying it. Yeah, completely. But different people take different enjoyments from it. I mean, one of our teams at Worthing, they're all about the win. If they go out and win. 3-0, 25-10, 25-10, 25-10, they're really happy with that. Our, our second team would not enjoy that sort of game at all. They'd almost rather lose 3-2, they'd have a really exciting, pulsating match and enjoy it, than just go out and trounce the team. Right, OK. And it's that difference, you know, some of the girls are there for the win, some of the girls, uh, and to improve, and some of the girls are there just because they enjoy playing volleyball. Mm. So it, it really does come down to personality, doesn't it? So much. Absolutely. And, and I think that's that must be one of the biggest challenges as, as a coach. And I know, I guess I'm lucky when I work with clients because very often I work on a one to one basis. So I mm. have the opportunity to 
get to know the person, as you said, build up that relationship, that trust, that rapport. But when you put that person back in a team, um, and that's where team sports, I suppose, it's so important to have, it's important to have a range of personalities, because otherwise it would be very boring. Um, but that's where it becomes difficult to coach, because yeah. you've got those range of personalities and people needing, some people needing strokes, some people needing more of a beast thing, <laughs> and some people just needing leaving alone. Completely, and and they affect each other on court as well. You have some players who, as it gets stressful, the situation, they like to make noise and get loud, try to intimidate the opposition, and sometimes that can have a negative effect on their teammates who are trying to zone in and be quiet and focus on what they're trying to do. But I think that blend is really important, but as a coach, as part of the skill is managing all those different attitudes at once on the court. And volleyball's quite an odd game because it is a team sport. You have to play it as a team. But at the same time, all the skills are completely individual. So when you're serving, for example, it's quite like tennis. Nobody else affects you. You are solely control. It's an individual skill. But your whole team is relying on you to get it in. And there can be quite an odd dynamic sometimes between the individual aspects and the, the team nature of it. Right. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I can understand that. Yeah. It's interesting the how different how different people's attitudes affect their game. And we, I spoke earlier about people getting blocked when they go to hit the ball. Mm. And some people, they'll take a block as an insult and they'll go up and hit it even harder. Mm-hmm. And they get blocked again, they'll take that as an insult and they go up and hit it even harder. Other people take a much more studious approach. Okay, I've got blocked. What can I do differently? How can I get round the block? Other people, and this used to be one of my faults, probably still is, you, you get blocked. And then you're almost too timid to go and hit again because you don't want to lose another point by getting blocked. And so you go for a gentle tip every time to avoid that getting blocked. And sometimes you want to kick those people and say, no, come on, go and hit it again. You've only been blocked once. You need to hit the ball. And the people who just go up and whack it and whack it harder and harder and harder. You want to say to them, no, come on, stop. Think a little bit more. But managing all those together can be quite difficult. Other people love to blame the setter. So the setter is the person who who puts the ball up for the person to hit it at the end. Okay. And more often than not, a lot of hitters, when they get blocked or when they hit it out, will turn and say the set wasn't high enough. It was too high. It was too fast. It was too flat. It was too this. And that can be an interesting situation to manage, especially when you've got an inexperienced young setter. Maybe people don't want to criticize the setter, but at the same time, they might need to. Is it genuine? Is it not? That's always very difficult. One of the easiest teams I coached, the setter had a very, very solid head and used to say to me, Every time one of the hitters mucks up, blame me. Tell them the set wasn't quite right and they'll get it next time. Here's his way of dealing with those. I'll take all the blame. I know half it isn't my fault, but that way the hitters aren't going to get down. They're going to keep going up and keep swinging for the ball. Okay. Which in one respect worked quite well because the hitters never really had lost any confidence in themselves because they always blamed the setter. But it did mean they weren't taking personal responsibility. And there's that element of, if you keep getting blocked and you keep saying it's the setter's fault, there's nothing you can do to change it. Mm. You can't change the sets. So then it's kind of a, you need them to take some responsibility, but it did work quite, quite well. The setter's taking all the blame. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting strategy from that setter, actually being willing to, to take on the responsibility for other people. You kind of think, wow, Mm. ultimate team player sort of saying, you know, make sure the hitter is is just feeling good about themselves and they'll get it eventually. But like you say, if, if there is a technique that, that needs to be amending, then that's that's not going to be very productive, is it? Because they'll just keep on getting it wrong. 
it's about again it's about managing the players knowing their individual things when you know somebody is a good player but they might may be slightly vulnerable to the stresses and the mental aspects of the game for them it works absolutely brilliantly to just say oh that was a terrible set it was too wide for you you'll get the next one for somebody who maybe isn't so technically proficient and might need reminding of things during the game it wouldn't work so well you need to say to them I can't maybe try hitting it down the line maybe try roll it that sort of thing I played in a game a couple of weeks ago where the louder players got very angry at the referee, started shouting, swearing at the referee, really making loads of noise and comments and got very frustrated. And the whole team's performance absolutely dive bombed wow. because they couldn't cope with the noise and the shouting and the disruption. And the coach, I wasn't coaching this game, the coach said to the players, Yes, he's made wrong decisions, but you need to try and bin that and focus on what you're doing. And the team were unable to do that, I think, because the two players are being so vocal. It almost needed them to shut up for the good of the team mm. to be able to, to play on. And the team lost very heavily against the team they should have beaten because they were focusing so much on the referee's awful decisions. Goodness, yeah. So it's it's probably going to be a an awful question and almost one that's impossible to answer, but... Do you, what do you think is the most important aspect, from your point of view, of coaching and, and helping people with the mental side of things? Obviously, as we've said, it, it varies with personality. But do you think there is a, a sort of a, an ultimate way of helping people to remain either mentally tough or helping people overcome mistakes let as you said if, if something goes wrong just being able to let it go do you think there is a way of of helping sort of a universal way of helping people do that, manage that kind of thing for me it's about being able to read people and you push them in whatever you're doing whether it be a mental aspect a physical thing a skill-based thing you push them to the point where they think they can't do it you do one more and then you stop Okay. Some of that, that way of reading them. I, I do a drill that's quite nasty where there are 10 people around the court all feeding balls for one person. You'll chase to one corner and try and pass it, then chase the other corner, try and pass it. It's an absolute beast of a drill. It knackers you. And I have a scoring system which basically allows me to control how long the drill goes on for. Okay. And I'll be watching the person very carefully. And when it gets to the point where I think, that's it, they now really can't cope, I'll give them one more and then stop. So I know I've pushed them to as far as they can go. And the next time they'll be able to go longer. Okay. And the same with uh, maybe some negative feedback. I can give them so much, so much, but I'll be watching them, reading them. And when it gets to the point where I think, no, I need to stop now, even if I still think there's more to talk about, I know there's a point where they can't cope with hearing any more. And so I stop. Okay. And I think that is the really important thing for a coach, knowing when and when, when to stop, when to give feedback. For example, I very, very rarely give technical feedback during a match. I'll give tactical feedback, you know, aim for this gap. Um, the defence needs to swing around here. We're going to block slightly different than this girl. That's yeah. fine. But technical stuff or personal things, I try to cut out during a game. because they're not at a point where they're able to receive that. So they're trying to focus on the match. Okay. I see a lot of coaches, they try and give lots of feedback at that point And players can't cope with it. Or you see a player in training they're tired, they're going through a hard drill, the coach has been having a go at them, having a go at them, and they're at a point where they can't take any more. And if you give them any more, that's either going to make them want to want to stop or they're just not going to be able to listen to it or you're going to lose the effect of what you're saying because it's just too much for them to take on. Mm. 
So for me, it's all about knowing where their individual limits are and whatever it is you try and do physically or mentally. My England players, I will just shout at them, keep going all the way through the session. because I know at the end of the day, they can take it. They're understanding what I'm saying. Some of my beginners, I'll give them one, two points and that's it. Because any more, they're not going to be able to retain it. Right, okay. It, it, I was just going to say, it's it's kind of endurance training, but you, you do endurance training physically, but it's almost like you're doing mental endurance training as well. It's Completely. Just taking um, them beyond the limit, but not so far that they, they fall apart. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's you take them to the point where they're stretching themselves. They're not, as you said, not over the edge and even... We do a we do a drill sometimes where you're a hitter playing against a defense that's set up for you. We'll get our two best blockers there, and you're not going to kill the ball every time. Now, for the best players where they are putting the ball down and winning every time, that can be a great thing. For them. It comes more about a physical thing. For some of the players, they're getting blocked a lot. They're not winning a lot of points. It's about that. Okay, I've been blocked. Come off and go again. Okay, they picked it up. I'm going to come off. I'm going to go again. And by making them go again and again and again, you're getting used to that. Okay, I failed, but I'm going to go again and try and beat it. And that can be really useful. But sometimes you need to you need to make sure you're stopping that before it becomes a I'm never going to succeed. Or maybe you pull out one of the blockers, swap it for a weaker player. So then suddenly they're getting some success. And for me, the skill of the coach is reading at what point you need to make a change, how much they can cope with. No, that that makes that makes huge huge amount of sense. Yeah, and. I was also going to ask you about the the differences that you find between coaching young people and, and as you said, people that are more further into their career or even coming to the end of their career. Do you do you find drastic differences? I mean, it's probably, you know, the obvious question is, yes, there are there are going to be differences. But where do you think most of those differences lie in the way that both you that you coach and also from the mental point of view? Do you find that children are find it easier, or or is it is it more of a challenge to kind of get them into to kind of building up their mental toughness? Do you think it's something they have, or is it something that comes with with time? That's an interesting question on the mental toughness, it, because it it can it can vary a lot. I ha- I work with two siblings, um, a girl and a boy, and the lad. If you said to him in training. You know, before a training match, I'm going to block you. You're not going to get hit past me all day. Mm. His head would drop down. You block him once and say, that's it. Sorry, mate. No more. I've got you. And he'd believe you. And his game would drop and he'd play awfully. And you know you had him in your pocket for the rest of the game. His sister, younger sister, I even when she was 12, 13, I say horrible things to her and really try and get into her head. Uh, the sir's going in the net, going in the net, going in the net. And the more you had a go at her, the more you wound her up, the more you told her she wasn't any good, the better she played. And just incredible mental toughness. Now, these were siblings with the same background, you know, both started volleyball at the same time. Didn't she? Whereas she was so mentally tough and he wasn't. And he, we had to work with him a lot to try and get some of that mental toughness. And I don't think he ever truly got it. She's out in the States and on a scholarship playing volleyball. So it, it worked out well for her. But it's interesting. And I think it can be trained to a certain extent. But I do think that some people are more gifted in that area than others. Right. Okay. So, so some people are more sort of almost hardwired. It's part of their part of their personality, part of their makeup, as you say. The more with the girl, the more you tried to wear her down, the tougher she got. Yeah, 
and the harder she I think she took that as motivation yes quite yes and I think that's where you can refer to some sort of sports psychology theories you know the, the attribution theory how what do people attribute success to or failure for that matter is it that they put a good performance down to luck or just situations on the day, or when they do well, just is someone more likely to say, actually, that was because I did this, this, and this. And I imagine that's more of the case for that little girl, whereas the boy would probably say, if he did well, he would probably just say, it was it was chance, it was luck, maybe. But if he did badly, it would be, oh, well, I failed, I messed up, you know, or it was due to situations sort of out of my control. It, it I, kind of comes think... down to a feeling of personal control. There's a there's a certain amount of that for a lot of players. I think for him, it was a lot about image. He always had to have the latest gear. He looked fantastic and all his stuff. And he'd come up and he'd jump and he'd smash the ball down and look great. And he'd look for that adulation. Then suddenly he'd get blocked or make a mistake and his head would go down. He played in a team of very, very good players. I think sometimes he felt that if he wasn't matching them, he wasn't good enough and his head would drop. And I think... For him, he needed to be able to recognise that he was a good player and one bad hit didn't make him a bad player, but he struggled to, to do that. Um, in response to your, your earlier question as well about the difference in coaching adults and children, mm. I think you need to recognise where people are at in their careers. I mean, with the children, I always try and make sure... So in volleyball, you have set positions. You have a setter, an outside, a middle, an opposite, um, and a libero. I try and make sure that young people get to play all the different positions because I don't try and force them into somewhere straight away where they're necessarily not uh, when they're not necessarily happy or it's not their right position because you don't know how physically they're going to change as they get older so I try and make it about fun enjoying try, trying a bit of everything with the older players kind of they're not you're not going to change them so you stick you, you train them just in their one position it might be they have a slight technical flaw in their technique that isn't quite right but works for them now with a junior you don't know how far they're going to go. So I would always try and correct that and get it right. With an adult who maybe is going to stay playing lower level volleyball, they can get away with a slight flaw in their technique. They've made it work for them. They've been doing it 25 years. There's no point in trying to change that. Leave it. They're not going to appreciate having that aspect played with. It's not going to really make much difference in the level they play. So I just leave it. But with a junior, I'll always go into that and try and change it so with an adult I'll focus much more on kind of the tactical side of things and the, the motivational side of things where somebody's still aspiring to go up the levels I'll look much more at their technique as well right and sometimes when I've worked with kids it's maybe it's more um, sometimes I think obviously if, it, if a child is under 16 um, then very often it's the parent that has suggested um, that the, the, the child should come and see me, you know. Um, and one of my challenges is always obviously to make sure that the child actually wants to be there as well. It's not just the parent forcing them into it. Um, but yeah. do you, do you find that as well with with some kids that that if you're struggling, it's a case of actually do they really want to be there? And they might say yes, yes, yes. You know, I really enjoy this sport, but it's kind of getting down to actually. It then it goes beyond the the pleasure bit, and it just becomes process, and it's maybe parents forcing them and and kind of putting the pressure on, but they're they're really struggling with that, and they just don't want to be there. We we do get that, and that's why, as I said, 
with the juniors, I always try and make sure they're getting some game time in the session. I mean, sometimes with adults, you'll have a purely technical or physical session. With the juniors, I'll always try and make sure they're getting some game time in, some some space just to enjoy playing volleyball. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, lad, we've got at the moment. He he hasn't been playing that long, but he last year he was playing for two teams, two of our teams in Sussex. He was also playing for our national league team, and he was training with the regional squad. And suddenly it was just too much training. His head dropped, and his attitude just completely fell apart. And he wasn't enjoying it anymore because he was doing it every night. It was coming a bit of a drag. And so for him, I recommended he stop doing an awful lot of it, and he has. He's cut right down just playing for two sides now and you can see he's starting to enjoy playing the game again and that's what's really important and where young people are really pushed by their parents I try and help them to find their own personal motivation to play and to be there and for some people it's all about getting smashed the ball really hard some people it's about that teamwork and camaraderie and being part of units some people it's about trying to push themselves and see how much they can develop some people, it's about their fitness. But with the juniors, I try and help them define what it is that motivates them to play. And some of them are successful and some of them, they, you're right, they don't want to be there. Their parents are pushing them. They'll enjoy it for a while, but until they find their own inner motivator, they're not really going to push it on and take it on for themselves. Okay. So it's like, like I said earlier, I think that there is no um, sort of magic solution for everybody, is there? It is such a personal thing, and that's probably from what you've said, I can understand, makes your makes your job so challenging, but also so fascinating, I imagine, at the same time. That's, that's what I like about it. I mean, if everyone was the same, it'd be really boring. Yeah. <laughs> and that's part of the challenge for me as a team sports coach, is to try and get everyone playing together and manage all those different personalities to make a cohesive team that works. And that that's what I really enjoy about doing it. And I think, volleyball is a nice number for that it's six people I know when I've coached football before you got 11 on the pitch probably got a squad of about 18 it becomes you can't give that individual and that team focus and it's a lot more difficult in football when I've coached rugby it's it's even bigger again but I find volleyball that kind of you'll have a squad of about nine on match day and that's a really good number to kind of be able to give individual work and blend that team to win okay brilliant well, thank you, Mickey. That's that's really interesting. I've I've certainly uh, I've certainly learnt quite a bit, sort of, you know, from my own personal experiences as well, and understanding from a coach's point of view how all the challenges that you've got. So, um, so, so no, thank you for that. That's that's really great. No worries. And as I say, you you work with um, you do you do all sorts of work. So you, the work with the the root of it as well is more on sort of behavioural. That's that's out of a sporting context, is it? Yeah, so I work in schools with children with behavioural difficulties or special needs or just need some extra support, maybe around self-esteem, that sort of thing. But I use an awful lot of the skills I've just been talking about in reading the client, see how much they can take, see if I can push them, and about finding their inner motivators to do things. A lot of the work, a lot of the skills are transferable. And I think a lot of the work I do with young people I use more of my sports skills than my other my other training okay it's really interesting to apply some of those things to the young people and also use some of my sports stuff with them very lucky to have coached over 20 sports in my career to be able to take some of those and work with work with some of these children who maybe haven't had the opportunity to play and you use sport as a vehicle can be fantastic I know using cricket or golf 
when working around self-esteem can be absolutely fantastic. I mean, a young person's face, the first time they cream an off-driving cricket, and you see that the ball just shoots off the middle. It just feels right if you've ever done it. And you can see their face just light up, and you can work on those feelings. You can get them to kind of store that memory. You can use that as a starting point for for building stuff up. So they are. it is a very different job coaching and the, the the work in schools but actually a lot of the skills are transferable and I use skills from each each job in the other one <laughs> right yes I can imagine yeah no that's that's a that's a great um advantage to have that from both sides I imagine like you say yeah okay well thank you again for your time a really interesting um chatting to you and um and all the best with your your future work thank you very much uh, good luck with the rest of the show <laughs> thank you Bye-bye. Okay, so just before I introduce my second guest, I just wanted to um, point out that if anybody is interested in the work that Mickey does um, with uh, children, in with the intervention work that he does, you can get in touch with him through the company called The Root of It, which is uh, an, an, a company that works with both schools and educational institutions. So if you if you'd like to get in touch with Mickey, you can go through go through their website. Okay, so without further ado, let's get my second guest onto the show. Um, so good morning, James. Thanks very much for being on the show this morning. Thank you for your time. Good morning, it's a pleasure. Can I just ask you to give a quick kind of profile about yourself, please, and what, what your background is and how you got into the work that you currently do? Uh, sure. Um, I've always loved sport. I never really saw it as a, a career till about 10 years ago. And um, just 10, 12 years ago, I decided that's that's what I wanted to, to follow. did a master's in sports psychology after initially doing the bachelor's in psychology. During that time, did my first coaching qualification in football. Sort of fell in love with that as well a little bit. Um, I've been doing both ever since, really. Due to the, the kind of difficulties in finding full-time work in either sports psychology or football coaching, I've, I've gone down the route of being a teacher and doing the other two as a little bit of a sideline, if you like, with a view, hopefully, to, to maybe looking to teach in higher education at some point. Um, so over that time, I've worked with uh, a number of clients, uh, particularly mixed martial arts, done a lot of work there, I have a close relationship with the gym in Manchester um, and various footballers, worked for a couple of seasons with the University of Manchester, which is very successful, uh, and players who've gone on to play semi-professional for their work in uh, Cyprus with some of the teams out there. Lovely. Um, some of the Premier League teams in Cyprus and their academies. Um, and also just other bits and pieces, really. So I've worked with a couple of runners who had specific issues um, that I've worked with. Uh, and other times it might just be a, a simple performance enhancement program that you're working with them. Uh, depends on the client's needs, really. Uh, for like I said, I've been doing that since 2001. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's, uh, it's a great job. And and I take it you 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 said when you were after you did your masters you went on to to be a to do football coaching as well. Is that something that's a, a personal love? Do you do you play yourself? Um, I used to. I was an enthusiastic amateur rather than, than playing at any great level. But I've always something I've always loved, and I really love working with. Um, I'm working with an under fourteen age group at the moment, so I love working with uh, players at a developmental age, trying to give them any sort of information that might help them to, to become professional 
professional or semi-professional players. Okay. And if not, there's the education side that I would. Right. Okay. So, do you find working with the kind of the youth, let's say, compared to an adult athlete? You know, if someone's going into whether it's professional football or or martial arts or running or whatever the sport, do you find the way the reasons that clients come to see you and the way that you work with them is different according to their age? Yeah, I think obviously you have to, if you're working with the younger age groups, you you have to simplify it. Um, I mean, like I said, I was lucky enough to work with Manchester University, so they're all very intelligent young men, so you could pitch it pretty much almost at master's level, so you're kind of replicating what I've learnt myself, but when you're working with 13, 14-year-olds, I think you just absolutely baffle them, so you have to think about simplifying it. Um, and you mentioned before, is there any differences? I think the main difference is obviously with football being a team sport, uh, I'm very male-dominated, there's a lot of egos there, and it's sometimes it's very hard to break down the barriers, but uh, I think the main difference would be whether you're dealing with players individually or on a team basis. Mm. Uh, mixed martial arts artists, obviously, you're always working on a one-to-one, so you get a chance to develop a bit of rapport and a bit of a relationship. Whereas with footballers, you can do the same um, if you're working individually, but if you're working in a team setting, then obviously it's a bit it's a bit different. There's group dynamics to, to take account of, and it's sometimes hard to, to get footballers to take on board information about of psychology, because I think it might be, you know, that they're showing some sort of weakness in front of them, the mates or the peers. So that that's probably one of the biggest challenges I would say working with footballers. Right. Okay. And do you think that's unique to the sport of football, or is that just more of a any sport that's male dominated? Maybe that would happen in rugby uh, as well, or I couldn't. I've not worked personally in rugby. I couldn't really comment on that. I imagine it would be similar. Because uh, you do get the, the kind of the um, the pack mentality a little bit in, in male-dominated sports. Uh, I think the further you go up towards the elite end of sport, you're going to get less of that because people are more kind of dedicated and and don't sort of mind admitting that they've got things that they need to work on. That's the thing, and I think one thing I know from my experience is I've typically worked with people, or predominantly worked with people on a one-to-one basis. Um, with the hypnotherapy side of things, but do you find that people are do are a bit hesitant in sort of looking at the mental aspect because it's almost as though if you if you're going to see someone to say look I'd like some help with this, it's either a sign of weakness or it's in it's sort of admitting that there's a problem because you know I yeah. reassure people you don't have to be sick ill. Um, have a problem particularly it's just something that's not currently working for you but how can you overcome that in kind of presenting yourself to people new clients or or new students in fact I think you've hit upon the the single most uh, challenging factor for sports psychology Um, like you say it is because it's psychology people think there's it's problem related and you know you're going to lie on the couch and talk about your relationship relationship with your mother and all, all this stuff's going to get dredged up but you, the first thing I try to emphasize is it's purely about performance enhancement but it is very very hard to get that across especially in a, in a team setting I mean the best clients you work, to, work with are obviously the ones that are most open-minded and they tend to be like I say on a one-to-one if you are doing that in a group setting um, obviously you've got the 
kind of the the magnification effect of being around the mates and and also there's there's maybe a possible possible problem with selection as well if the the player thinks that the manager knows they're, they're seeing a psychologist maybe they think there's something wrong with them um, and when it's your livelihood that you're depending on getting picked and getting paid and and whatever it might you might not want to show any weakness in, in front of your your manager or your coaches mm. I mean one of worked in mixed martial arts it's, it's been quite handy because the coach is the one that tends to refer the clients to me so that's if you've got the coach on board then that's half the battle I think yeah. there needs to be quite a, a holistic approach and and I guess with the Olympics obviously now a few years ago I remember seeing particularly with I think it was the British cycling team they were very open about having worked with the sports psychologist I think they even got them on the television to interview them they were raving about the the work that they did I think the British synchronized swimming team as well were, were similar do you think that sort of helped in raise the profile of how important the mental aspect is and that actually it's a person who is very often a technical coach as well but it may not be um you know sometimes it's good to kind of keep technical skill and and mental skill separately but that it sort of opens it up to be more actually this is a good thing to do and if you do that you're probably likely to to improve your performance yeah, I mean, uh, particularly you mentioned cycling. There's something in the BBC website today about Steve Peters, um, and he's worked with a lot of clients, uh, high-profile clients like the cycling team, Stephen Gerrard, Craig Bellamy, lots of footballers, and recently boxers, etc. So people like that, when people like Victoria Pendleton are coming out and saying he's the single biggest influence on my career, then it can only be good for sports psychology as a domain or sports psychiatry in his case um, the unfortunate thing is you do tend to get a lot of unqualified unregistered kind of gurus who've been a bit maybe self-taught they don't have the, the qualifications they may well be doing a decent job but they've not got the, the actual academic backup to that so they might you know if someone's had a bad experience um, with someone like that that can have the opposite effect so I think you have to be careful who you use as your, your role models. I had a, a friend who was a professional footballer, and before a game, he had someone who claimed to be a sport psychologist um, doing loads of relaxation and uh, um, basically meditation. So he'd gone to the game, and he was very, very relaxed, and obviously he had a dreadful game because his arousal levels were too low. Right. So it's kind of making sure that everything's applied in a correct way, and it's all done in a, a scientific manner, really. Oh, that's interesting. And to touch on that element of the uh, the, the lecturing and the, the education side that you do, if you're working with, um, well, I suppose working with a, a youth team, you can pitch it at a kind of a master's level. It train them, I suppose, and teach them these these skills. But do you find on the education side that it's that, that there's any challenges around it, or that people are you know, the, some things are, are easy to for people to take on on board. I suppose people that are on a course are there to learn, and they want to. They clearly want to get into it. They're, they're open-minded to it in the first place. Um, but do you find there's any any challenges at all in in the, the teaching of it side? 
Um, I think the biggest possible challenge for the teaching side is in the application side. So it's all very well having everything in black and white books, theories about aggression, arousal, leadership or whatever, and it's then actually being able to apply that. So that's where your, your skill comes in as a consultant, <clears throat> putting that information to good use and how you can actually get it into your, your client's head in the best way. Uh, I mean, personally, I like to use a lot of kind of case studies, um, video clips, that sort of thing, technology as much as I can, use of stats, anything I can to, to sort of back up what I'm doing. So I think that's that's the biggest challenge, getting it from the classroom onto the pitch and seeing results in that way. Okay. So you use those methods when you're actually teaching, when you're working with the, the university students? Yeah, well, I try to, um, like I say, use case studies as much as possible. So right. if you say, say you're doing um, about theory of aggression, you can show three different types of aggression um, or get your, your students to find three video clips that show those types of aggression so that they're actually applying it themselves rather than, you know, it's not sort of old school where you're just taking notes and it doesn't seem to make any sense. You're trying to give it a real-world kind of context, really. Okay. And just um, to touch on case studies, obviously, um, you know, you've worked with some high-profile sports people by the sounds of it, and athletes, so not mentioning any particular names, but what are the sorts of things that you find you've had particular success with, either in football, martial arts, or or, or any any kind of field? It's just, I think, a lot of it when you, you go in, I mean, a good coach would be a good sports psychologist anyway. I mean, that's part of the part of your makeup as a coach, but it's going in and just kind of smoothing off the edges a little bit maybe and anything you can add to what's going on so it might be things on the organizational side um how training's done maybe things that uh, athletes haven't uh, figured out for themselves i mean giving time most athletes a lot of sports psychology is common sense anyway so mo- most athletes will, will work a lot of it out so it's just kind of filling in the little gaps and giving them a bit of a head start uh so remember an interview with uh, steve redgrave he said by the time he'd done his last Olympics, he kind of worked it all out himself because he worked, he worked with a sports psychologist and they, they told him all the stuff and he said, if only I'd known that kind of 20 years ago. Yeah. But he didn't do too badly, to be fair. Um, so it's just looking at, you know, doing, giving your, your opponents, the, sorry, your, your clients the edge as well, really. Uh, the difference between success and failure at the top end of sport is a fraction of 1%. So if you can give them something even if it's a marginal gain, as British cycling would call it, mm. um, you're given more of a chance to win. And when you do get to the elite end, it's the psychological factors that are most important because everything else tends to balance out. So your technique, your tactics might be a factor, but your fitness, when you get to the top level, with something like martial arts, even football, any sport really, it's going to be the, the mental side that will carry you through. That will make the difference between winning and losing, I think. Do you find um, at all that uh, people come to you because obviously as a as a coach, you know, you as for example in football, you would be commenting on technical skill as well. But mm-hmm. sometimes I guess it's it's probably better to keep the technical element of it completely separate. I know when I've spoken to some golfers, they sort of say, look, I don't want to mess around with my my golf swing or the technique. But it's it's all the mental aspect, you know. It's they'll say I'm getting distracted, or um, I feel anxious, or I've lost confidence, or 
maybe I've just lost the love of the game, for example. Do you find that you that that you end up having to kind of cross over, sort of working? On yeah, the I mean, I think it's as well as mental. There's there's pros and cons to being a coach and having a psychology background. I think because you can kind of sneak some stuff in that when they're not expecting it, so they don't even realise it's it's psychology, <laughs> like. But then it might sound better, like you say, coming from a specialist. But then you might have the barriers that if it's a psychologist coming in and it's, it's labelled that way, then again you're looking at weaknesses. Um, and in sport, particularly in academy football, you tend to, to have people who aren't just coaches, so they do tend to have a, a second string to their bow as well. A lot of coaches in academies are, are graduates or uh, postgraduates have strength and conditioning, coaching, science, qualifications. So um, part of it is that you, you do need the extra qualifications as well. Um, I mean, we work to the, the four corners model as well. Um, so as much as possible, if you can deliver as many of the four corners as you can, I suppose it's been more, more efficient as well. Because it's, like I said, it's a bit more holistic, isn't it? Because some people might just look at technique um, and neglect the tactical or the psychological side. Some might be experts in the strength and conditioning, so they might neglect the other three corners. So mm. I think is to be as rounded as possible is, is important. So if you can get as many of the factors in as possible, then, then that can only be good. Mm. And um, I think, I can't remember what you said earlier, but the way that you work with, uh, say, someone who's a, who's a, a boxer or what plays in mixed martial arts as opposed to football, Again, you've mentioned football as a team sport, so obviously there's a different dynamic if you're trying to work with, with, with players as a group. But what's your kind of main approach to to approaching a different sport? Would you would you present yourself in a different way, or would you would you just really focus on the individual who who you're working with at that time, rather than saying, oh, well, you're a footballer you do mixed martial arts, therefore this is what I'm gonna this is the way I'm gonna work with you. I suppose it's it's not making assumptions about, like you say, what the person wants to achieve, because high arousal for somebody is is not for another. So but how do you kind of balance yeah. out the different way of working with different sports? Um well initially you have um a pretty much a standard template to follow. Um something called Thomas's seven phase model. So before you you even meet your client if you're working in a new sport you're going to do your research uh, I mean the first time I worked in mixed martial arts I didn't have a clue about any of the rules or anything so I had to do a fair bit of reading about the history and uh, techniques and the rules of each competition at amateur semi-pro and professional level um, so you go in four arms before you meet your clients and then it follows a certain patterns as to whether you work whatever sport you're working in whether it's uh, football mixed martial arts, rugby, individual team sports, you follow pretty much the same uh, sort of pattern. So it'll be familiarising yourself with the sport initially, and then it'll be kind of a test, what we call a test battery. So obviously if you go to the, the doctors, he's not going to prescribe any medicine for you without examining it. So really you've got to find out as much information as you can about your client or clients, whether they're individual or team. So um, like I say, you can speak to them themselves as a couple of questionnaires I use, um, obviously trying to keep them as brief as possible so you don't kind of alienate them to start with. Mm. Performance profiling is a massive thing we do which is very, very useful. 
could be, like I say, looking at videos of them, statistics, talking to coaches, friends, people they're training, obviously without breaching their confidentiality. And then once you've kind of gathered as much information as you can, then you look at your interventions and how best to apply them. So it might be on an individual basis or a team basis um, and building rapport, as we call it. So, you know, just kind of having a little bit of a laugh and a joke, finding out about your clients' backgrounds. If it's in a team setting, you engage in a little bit of banter with your players, a bit of a laugh and a joke, try not to take it too seriously and then put it into practice. See how you get on, normally based around competitive cycle. Uh, and then obviously you've got your review period afterwards. You get feedback from your clients, your coaches, and then you go back to sort of phase one again. And it's just a big kind of loop, a big cycle. Okay. And like you say, you kind of touched on being able to get to know the person. I imagine that is probably the most important phase because if someone is having it not imposed on them, but like you say, if a coach has referred somebody and they're sort of thinking, well, do I really need this? Then they're going to want to know that you're there for them rather than just doing it as part of the course almost. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't always work. I've, there's a couple of clients that have been referred to me and you just thought from the get-go they're just not interested, mm. dead sort of frosty and defensive. So you think, you know, do an initial session with them and then they can come to me if they want a second session. Mm. So I think you can tell straight away if you if they're interested and if you hit it off really. And I wonder if that's actually an indicator of how, I suppose, not their mental toughness level, but how successful they would be in the sport, perhaps. You know, if somebody is that blinkered as to, well, I don't need any of that, I'm fine, then actually, you know, that, that may be something that's actually holding them back in, in their overall performance anyway. Possibly. Um, I mean, one, one of the guys that was like that with me then went on to, to win pretty much all of his fights, so we might have had a point really. Oh, okay. Um, but I'd like to think with with um, the average is probably about two to three sessions a day with with the client initially. So I'd like to think there'd be at least one tiny thing they could pick out of that. So like I said earlier, that might be the fraction of a percent they need to make the difference between winning and losing. So it'd be nice to think, like you said, they could be a bit more open-minded and. You know, say, I'll take that bit, that's a load of rubbish, I'll leave that, I'll leave that. But, you know, even if there's one thing they can pick out of it, it surely would be uh, beneficial to them. But then you're going back to the challenge about kind of people thinking it's about problems and issues. Mm. Okay, um, well, that's brilliant. If, if there's anyone listening out there that's either um, a professional athlete or just a, a, a budding sports person is interested in finding out more. How could they get in touch with you, James? Do you have a website? Uh, not currently, no. I've got, okay. I'm on Twitter. Okay. Um, so at, at Sports Site Jimbo. That's probably the best way. Yeah, that'd be the best way, really, on Twitter. Also, uh, I've got a, an ebook out as well, if I can just have a little plug for that, possibly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we all love extra reading it's, material. <laughs> yeah, it's on um, it's on Amazon as a, a Kindle book. It's MMA Sports Psychology Manual. Okay, so it's a, a very niche uh, product. So hopefully there's some stuff in there that might help people in combat sports, any sport really. Yeah, I've also got sorry my own blog, uh, WordPress blog uh, again, Sports Site Jimbo, and very good website that I contribute to called the Sporting Mind. 
run by a chap called Adam Morris, which is loads and loads of uh, resources and articles on there from probably a couple of hundred people by now, so that's a very good resource. So, yeah, so thanks very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Okay, pleasure. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today, I'm afraid. Thanks very much for listening today. And please do tune in again in a couple of weeks' time for another show of Change Your Own Mind.